Welcome to On Being a Police Officer. I am launching this podcast with my conversation with a sergeant from the Seattle Police Department. We talk about many of the issues the Seattle Police Department is facing, including, like many other departments, ongoing riots and protests, putting many lives at risk, including the lives of police officers. It just so happened we recorded the interview the day that Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best, who was the first black female police chief of the Seattle Police Department, suddenly and unexpectedly announced her resignation. I could tell the sergeant was reeling from the news. To get some perspective on the significance of Chief Best's resignation, I'm talking first with Linda Byron, a well-known Seattle investigative reporter who spent more than 30 years with Seattle's NBC affiliate, King 5. Linda covered, among many other things, a great number of police stories. Linda, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. As I said, you've been a longtime investigative reporter in Seattle, and you have a real sense of what Chief Best's resignation means. We've seen a number of chiefs of police step down in recent weeks, but I wanted to ask you for some perspective on Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best and why this was significant. Chief Best had the respect of rank and file officers because she was one of them. She had done practically every job in that department and she had a real passion for the work. At the same time, she was reform-minded. She had gotten her management chops under Kathleen O'Toole, the former chief, and she was pulled up from the rank of captain all the way to deputy chief. I mean, that really said something about the respect she had in the department. And then she was tasked with helping the police department carry through some seismic changes, including fixing a pattern of using excessive force according to the Department of Justice. The DOJ was also demanding that SPD address a practice of bias policing against people of color and other disenfranchised people. And Carmen Best, as a black woman, had very strong connections to Seattle's communities of color. And she always made sure they felt heard and were included in discussions about how to improve policing. So when O'Toole left, Carmen Best ran the department. And then the mayor's search committee came back and excluded her from the top three candidates that were being recommended for the permanent job. There was a huge uproar. People were in disbelief. They were angry. And it was community groups. It was people of color in the community. It was also rank and file police officers. The mayor heard it. She listened and she put... Carmen Best back on the list, and eventually Carmen Best was selected to be the first black woman to lead the Seattle Police Department. So fast forward two years for me. Where do things stand today? Wow, had things changed in in two years. Chief Best had been working hard to increase diversity in the police department, and she had been deeply committed. But there was a seismic shift in America. George Floyd loses his life at the hands of Minneapolis police, and there are calls for defunding police departments all over the country and here in Seattle, a very loud outcry to do that. The city council is grappling with that, and they announced one day that they are going to slash the police budget. It will result in a hundred officers losing their jobs without ever really consulting her on the best way to maybe revise or reform the police department. And the chief having about half or more than half of her salary cut. 
and she was outraged and she felt very disrespected. While in hindsight, this may seem like a logical choice for her, at the time, it was quite a surprise. I think it was a huge shock. This is a woman who was dedicated to the police department. She had made it her life's work. I mean, she was someone who was bridging the gap, trusted by the rank and file, trusted by the community. The way she explained it was that she could not in good conscience fire these officers who she had worked so hard to bring in. The younger officers, the more reformed-minded, more of the diversity, the, the officers from different backgrounds, officers of color, transgender, these are the ones who are gonna leave. And she did not feel that she could stand by and do that, or actually have to be the one to do that. Let's close with what you see as the impact on the department and on the community. It's not good. It further erodes trust and it demoralizes the rank and file. Here we had a leader who we thought was doing the right thing. I mean, this is a chief who sympathized with the Black Lives Matter cause. And yet in the name of Black Lives Matter and police reform, the first black woman to lead the Seattle Police Department is gone. And so what happens next? So now we're back to where we were two years ago. There will be another national search. There'll be a decision on whether to give the deputy chief under Chief Best, Adrian Diaz, the top job. But it's a setback. You know, just to wrap this up, Carmen Best seemed to be the exactly the type of police chief that you would want during the unrest that gripped Seattle and the entire country. She was from both worlds. And to lose her with so much uncertainty is just a tremendous loss for the city of Seattle and for the officers that she led. Well, thank you for that insight. It certainly helps set up my interview coming up next with the sergeant from the Seattle Police Department. Thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now I turn to my interview with a sergeant from Seattle Police. He has been on the department over 28 years. He currently serves in the Wellness Unit and in a volunteer capacity as Operations Director for Code 4 Northwest. In both these roles, he tends to officers' mental and emotional well-being. We talk about many things in addition to Chief Best's resignation. He shares his reaction to the murder of George Floyd. He walks me through what it has been like for officers on the front lines of the riots and protests especially during the period where protesters took over Seattle Police Department's East Precinct. We talk about where SPD goes from here, we discuss what keeps him going, and just why he chose to become a police officer. Here's our conversation. You know, I generally try to lead the interview. I always feel it's my responsibility, but today I want to let you start and just tell me what you're thinking, how you're feeling. So today is an especially, I guess, perhaps emotional day as uh, this morning we learned that our chief, Carmen Best, has decided to resign from our department. There have been over two and a half months of riots and protests and disturbances throughout our city amidst a political climate that's been less than beneficial. Today, I've been kind of reviewing my thoughts and trying to assess where I fit in the whole picture within my department. As a sergeant, uh, as the operations director for Code 4 Northwest, I feel like I have a responsibility to 
at least provide some level of hope to our officers, especially our younger officers who, uh, who may or may not be targeted for uh, reduction in, in the force. So, you know, my big question that I've been thinking about today is how do I do that? How do I go about providing hope, some level of motivation? You know, while at the same time, I think it would be derelict to say, hey, everything's going to be okay and we're all going to be fine, don't worry. Still haven't arrived at, you know, how I present that, that hope. But that's really the key, I guess, theme of, of what I'm thinking about and what I've been contemplating today and in, in weeks past. There's nothing good about having to stand on a front line for nine, ten hours as a, as a police officer while being pelted with insults and incendiary devices and weapons and bottles. And so, you know, really I think my job as the wellness sergeant is to, to actively, proactively nurture the officers and their families to help them at least cope with this, and then finding ways, and I think we've done pretty good at at having resources at Code 4 to help them further process it to get to okay later once all this stuff subsides. Since you mentioned Code 4, let's talk a little bit about what that is. Code 4 is a nonprofit organization uh, started in 2013 with the, the very centered focus of providing resources for first responders and their families. Uh, we have a hotline that's, uh, that's staffed 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. You can get some just kind of a peer support talk or a listen. And then we have almost 60 counselors that we have pre-vetted throughout the, the whole state that we can refer you to. Most of them have both in-person and Zoom or online sessions available. And we vet them for their sensibilities and their, their training experience in handling PTSD, PTSI-related maladies. Uh, stress, trauma, and also substance abuse or substance dependency. Our last tier is also pre-vetted inpatient treatment centers that we visit, and we want them to be very safe and effective places for officers and first responders or family members to go to to, to get healed from the effects of prolonged exposure to trauma. Well, that really is an invaluable support system you are offering to all first responders throughout the state of Washington. I just want to note the website for the organization. It's code4northwest.org and the site includes the 24-hour hotline and perhaps you could even donate. I want to return to your comment of officers standing on the front lines during the protests and riots. Tell me what it's been like. In my uh, capacity as a wellness sergeant, we, we quickly just were a support element, and we would get undercover cars, fill them with, with water and food, lunches, dinners, and then sneak them into the precinct so they could, these officers could have something to eat. In no way uh, would I compare my experience in these, these riots to the, the, these officers who have been on the front lines for hours and hours. But I saw the results after they came back, and these officers were literally just falling apart. They were defeated. They were injured, they were discouraged, they were frustrated from having to stand on a line for hours and hours, days upon days, and then, you know, eventually understanding that we were going to give the precinct, East Precinct up, the very precinct they were protecting with their lives for a couple of weeks. We talked a few days ago to prepare for this interview, and what I noted you said is that we are all in agreement, meaning the police and the community, over what's happened, over the murder of George Floyd. 
yet no one sees we are in agreement and instead they're throwing bottles at us. Exactly. I don't know, honestly, of any cop who agrees with what they saw of this Minneapolis incident with, with George Floyd, the behavior of the officer. I, I don't know of anyone, I've never heard a single utterance of anyone condoning that behavior. So you can imagine if you're an officer, especially if you're maybe an officer of color, you're standing on the front line being insulted, assaulted for hours and hours, being blamed for and, and grouped into the same category as that officer that had his knee on, on Mr. Floyd's neck. When we all agree, rational thinking was out the door and it turned into this mob mentality. And at this moment or the moment of this, this uh, series of protests, the officers were, were proclaimed to be the, the enemy. But that, that, that is what it is. I guess the question is, how do you help officers who have been subjected to that? Uh, in many cases, I have uh, many uh, friends of, uh, of, diff of color and, and different gender who have had to live some sort of disparate treatment at some point or long points in their life. And at the same time, they're trying to stand up and follow orders by standing on a line. And, and there's nothing happening except for just... Uh, gratuitous assaults on their character and their and their bodies. We just went through this period of COVID and it affected all first responders and the medical community. Those first responders included police. They were struggling and working long hours and not being able to go home. And you're dealing with a police force that was already weary. And then this happened. What are you seeing in their behavior and in their trauma and their words and their actions? I can tell you that the average officer who was, like you said, already worn out, but who was also being regarded as kind of the hero and grouped in with nurses and fire and EMS, suddenly became an enemy literally overnight, which I think exacerbates their ability to, to, to process all this stuff. We have at Code 4 and in the wellness unit seen a huge spike in, in officers and family members reaching out, really just saying that they are unable to process. This is stimulus overload for them. So many different elements. And so, you know, I guess back to that hope, I personally am very thankful that I've been put in a position both in the Seattle Police Wellness Unit and with Code 4 to actually have some answers for people who, who reach out for help. It's very gratifying to me. And I actually happen to know that we've saved a, a few lives through this whole, uh, this whole period. Anything you can share specifically? Uh, one example is an officer, uh, and I won't make be very descriptive, an officer was on the front lines for basically all of the first two weeks of riots. All day, every day. We were on blue gold, which means 12 day hours on, 12 hours um, at home. It usually transfers into 14 or 15 hours on plus commute and a few hours sleep and get back at it. This officer, no one would argue, is anything but that officer you envision when you think about a strong, capable, uh, maybe even tough officer. This officer completely fell apart, could not even get out of bed, and thankfully reached out and, and we got that officer uh, some advanced help. So the effect of this this protracted period of between COVID and all these riots has literally broken down very strong officers to the point where they can't even, they can't even function. And I hear you and the stories I have told before, 
I know you to be good people and it's hard knowing there are so many people who just hate you. I can't speak from their experience. I, I, I hate for anyone to be afraid of the police. I hear you and the officers I know and the, the things you, that are important to you and what you want to achieve and I can't reconcile them. Right. To some extent, the officers build this, this ability to process and, and somewhat inoculate themselves from a lot of the, a lot of this garbage that's being uh, spewed at them. But some of it does get in. Well, and I think of the things that don't make the news are officers run toward shots fire where other people run away. Officers go in to clear a house not knowing who's inside. Those stories don't get told. They don't get told. Officers go up, see an old man on, the, on his front porch, go up and sit with him and chat with him for a half hour in the middle of their shift. That has zero news value. But that's what's happening. I think the mainstream population understands that, especially in black communities. They understand that we need to have some control uh, in the form of law and order in order for their lives to be better, right? And, and we are that, we are that element. It's, it's going to be a long time to repair the damage that's already been done, I think, through this whole past several months. If so many people in this country are unhappy with the police, are afraid to get pulled over, do you see anything that needs to be changed? Somehow, I think we need to get back to an environment that has a theme that falls under one word, and that word is trust. I think what has virtually disappeared from the equation in interactions or thoughts about police is trust. And I know uh, from, from many sides of the equation that use of force is ugly. Without trust, the conclusion, automatic conclusion, is that because it's ugly, it's wrong. Any even possible misstep by police is going to be perceived with in this environment of zero trust of police as wrong. I have witnessed in my uh, civilian time with my wife officers fighting with a violent shoplifting suspect and I was I was struck by my own reaction to that because we were literally walking into the front door as this thing was you know this fight was going on. I was offended. I was not happy with the cops. I was very surprised once I thought about my, my just that go-to reaction. And of course, I learned over the next almost 30 years that my perception was not correct and was not thoughtful. But here I am, arguably a very pro-police person, being somewhat offended by that, having to see that, right? So that's my answer, very simply. We, how do we get back to an environment of trust? So you were in a situation as a civilian where you were observing a police interaction thinking they were getting it wrong. Yeah, and I, I don't know if I was concluding that it was wrong, but it was, it was for sure offensive to me. Just that there was violence happening right in front of me. Maybe in the back of my mind, maybe I thought that they somehow had control over where the suspect was going to fight them, or that they somehow should have had some magic button they could have pushed on the suspect to stop the fighting. That, that was my natural expectation, and it was very striking to me. I can remember interviewing officers in the past who say, when we have to arrest someone, it's never pretty. Two civilians can be sitting in a coffee shop, watching a guy standing on a corner, and then all of a sudden four police descend, that they have to take this person down. 
and the people watching this get very upset about it, but they don't understand, they don't know, he just assaulted someone. What's difficult, I think, is people have lost sight that use of force is sometimes necessary, and it, it may not be attractive, but it may be necessary. Yeah, and so there are, there are legal standards that, that force is must, must uh, fulfill. Lawful and proper are the two most simple terms, right? That's all well and good on the rational side, but again, we're dealing with the emotional reaction to seeing violence in front of us. And most of us in America have been taught, don't hurt people, don't hit people. Violence is wrong. And I totally agree with that. don't think we should change that. But that's, in, that's inset in our sensibilities. And then all of a sudden you see something totally disruptive and violent. It's, I can only imagine if someone witnesses officers shoot and kill a suspect. I, th I think we have to be mindful that that's going to be, at the very least, very shocking. And I don't know what the answer is on how to sort of uh, surmount that emotional reaction. I do think communication can go a long way uh, if uh, citizens are willing to hear it. The problem, though, is another element, which is that mob mentality. And it was just insane to me that these these violent protesters in Capitol Hill for weeks are destroying millions of dollars in property. They ended up killing several people. And there, it's almost like there was this mentality of, of acceptance of this, of this violence. And, and it's no different except that the violence in their case was, was all gratuitous. And in most cases that I know of, maybe all cases, did not rise to lawful and proper. But there was somehow some acceptance of that within the, the community. There's so many elements that come into play. And again, you know, we, we can't account for every single element that comes up. But I do think that one factor of trust will go a long ways in at least allowing us to, the police to do their job in delivering public safety to their community, which is a, is a, it's, it's a, it's an affirmative duty of the job. So, and the, the community can understand that sometimes that, that means that it's, it's ugly. I would argue it's, it's a lot less ugly if the police come and handle a situation with their training, experience, and strength than if the citizens go out and try to handle it themselves. Where do you think we go from here? Obviously, today is kind of the pinnacle of, of, of challenges, at least for Seattle police, and I think it's got a reverberatory effect throughout the region. If someone like Carmen, who is very determined, is well-liked by both the community and, and, and her officers, decides that she is going to retire. But the, the police department is still going to be there. Officers are still going to be working. Crime is still going to occur. And we need to, to continue to do as much good as we can for each other in our jobs and literally hope and pray that that good will at some point surmount some of the most of the challenges that we're facing right now. And I have to say, I mean, in my 28 plus years, I came on right at the tail end of the Rodney King riots. We were, I call them, we were the goats at that point. Years later, there was a, a, a there were, was a pattern up in the East Precinct of gay bashing. People were just going up and finding people who were or appeared to be gay and assaulting them, sometimes very badly. We went out and, and took care of that problem and stopped it. Uh, good old-fashioned street work, and we were the heroes for a period. 
I'm sure there were other events, but the next high point was WTO. And during WTO, we were the goats again. And there was, you know, fighting in the streets. 9-11 happened, and, you know, in the aftermath, here we are, the heroes again. Ferguson happens, we're the goats. My point is, we, there are cycles in every career. And, and the message that I have been trying to convey to the younger officers is that uh, it's, it's not that great right now, it's not that positive, but this is one of many cycles that you will experience in, in your career if you stay in this business. And, and so you kind of have to average it out, I guess. I mean, it seems difficult, uh, almost impossible for many uh, officers and their families right now. But I believe that this cycle will somehow be corrected and we'll be in a different period where things will be much more positive and the job will be much more rewarding. Have you felt over your 28 years on the job that it has been and continues to be a rewarding career? Absolutely. I, I could cite, well, I'd like to cite many examples of uh, incidents and situations throughout my career that have given me a deep sense of accomplishment, that we've made a difference, we've stopped violence, we've, uh, we've helped people when they've be, been in their lowest point of addiction and helped guide them, or at least have a hand in guiding them to a different place. There was a Bothell officer who was shot and killed a few weeks back. There was a big memorial, and I went up as one of the wellness sergeants to Bothell Police to help them kind of process this and help them with the logistics. So one day I was standing outside of the memorial, and I had a shirt that had a Seattle Police insignia on it. And this, this black male was standing there. He was crying, and he said, hey, are you Seattle Police? And of course, I try to be as quiet as possible about what I do in public, but I looked down, and it's like, yep, I sure am. And he said, thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. And he came up and gave me a hug. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's tough times, man. And he goes, let me tell you, I was a crack addict in Seattle for years. I used to run from you guys. I used to wrestle with you guys. And several of you officers would counsel me and tell me there's a better way. You're cut from a better cloth. And I always ignored it till about six years ago. And those words reverberated uh, in my heart and mind. And I've been sober ever since then. So here's a guy, black male, who has had plenty of challenges with the police in Seattle. He's up there weeping at the death of an officer and the thought of society losing an officer who's contributing to, to the safety and, and, and our, our, our free way of life. Uh, it was very impactful for me. We, we traded phone numbers. Uh, we chat from time to time. He, we're, we're friends. Those are the backstories that people people don't hear, hardly all, if ever. There are, I can't tell you how many stories there are of, of situations just like that, where there's a bonding experience. The, the experience of, of my friend that I met up in Bothell and mine were different, but they were in the same arena. And that's usually the case in, in, in the work that I've done. Another case, uh, there was a gal, her mom called, uh, this was 1996, so it's, you know, a couple of years back, worried that her daughter might be using heroin and hadn't heard from her. We went to the this daughter's house and checked all the doors. Uh, it was uh, obviously vacant, but we could see needles and blood splatters in the walls, which indicated that there was uh, at least some, some IV drug use going on. So I set out, and I ended up finding that girl, 
and um, talked her into getting some kind of treatment. We ended up getting her into a local uh, hospital for inpatient detox, and then she ended up going off to treatment. The following year, there's a high U festival up in West Seattle, and uh, I went up there with my family, and I saw her. And I, she was like, a, uh, like the life had come back into her. She had freckles in her face, her hair was done, and she just had that vibrant young look to her. And she came up and um, just said thank you, and her mom was happy and uplifted. Great story, so happy. That following winter, uh, there was a car that was speeding down a certain main avenue, pulled it over. It turns out some of the kids that I'd met, you know, in the neighborhood, and I was, my intent was just, hey, you know, slow it down, and I won't give you a ticket this time. And the one kid who was this young lady's brother said, hey, did you hear about, I won't mention this person's name. And I said, no, I haven't heard from her for a while. What's up? He goes, well, she died uh, of an overdose in a uh, heroin place, heroin house in, in White Center. And my heart just sank. But the point of the story, as tragic as it ends, is that, again, we're out there not just fighting crime and chasing and hurting bad guys. We're, we're trying to make a difference. And those little, little incidents are really what lift me up to this day. What drew you to the profession to begin with? You know, I was a commercial real estate broker. Uh, I was doing well. Actually, a friend of mine who is was a tax attorney, we were both having a hard time finding the, the true meaning of, of the work we were doing. Both of us took the Seattle police test, just purely out of a calling, I guess. My intention was to do it for a couple of years, get a picture of me, you know, in my police uniform, and get back to my, to my real estate career. And uh, here it is, over 28 years, both myself and my friend are still employed by the Seattle Police Department. So I, I truly, in my case, it, it was this inexplicable calling that, that drew me to the profession. It's, it's a profession to be proud of, and, and, and it's a, something that, that makes you feel like you're, you're doing something about the, the condition of the community at large. Obviously, the initial ideal is you want to make a difference. And I guess what I rely on is for those individuals whose lives I have had a positive influence through my police work, it's totally worth it. Coming up on the next episode on Being a Police Officer is my interview with the Chief of Police for a medium-sized department in the Pacific Northwest. Here's a sneak peek. I've never been particularly proud of the uniform or the badge. That's just a symbol of what I do. But I'm very proud of some of the heroic things I've done as a cop. A lot of times people will be like, well, the good cop. A lot of times it's not a good or bad cop, it's, it's, it's a circumstance. But I do think we need to do a better job of identifying officers who just shouldn't be doing this job. There's a lot of criticism about the small number of calls that we go to are actually criminal, but almost every call when it comes out sounds like a crime and it sounds like violence. The cops who are the most skilled at using force are the most confident when they go out there and are the least likely to need to use it. If they were to reduce the number of officers, we're only going to be going there and arriving there when things have spun further out of control. And I, I can only see us increasing the amount of force that we end up using because we're only going to be stretched even thinner. I hope you'll join me.